Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. Chapter 34 Bruised midsection aching miserably, Cavallon worked his way into a spacesuit yet again. He decided he would just keep it on this time. This would be the one. He'd wear it until he died, which seemed more imminent the deeper they went into this viator monstrosity. He stood in the SGL's common room where Rake, Griffith, and Mesa suited up along with him. Jack and Emery had helped them prep, but would stay on board and determine how to disengage the autopilot in case they needed to make a quick retreat. And, Cavallon supposed, just so they could leave, period. Cavallon sealed up his suit, while Rake helped Griffith stretch his up over his broad shoulders. The pearlescent white fabric responded, glittering as it expanded to accommodate his size. Mesa waded off to the side, clutching the Atlas Pyramid in both hands. She stood pristinely still, suit already sealed over her lithe frame. Hers had done the opposite of Griffith's, resizing itself smaller to accommodate her petite figure. It revealed thin legs, a narrow waist, and scrawny arms. It made her seem all the more savant, and so much more frail than suited her presence. Her strong mind made it easy to forget the fragility of her body. Rake and Griffith strapped their weapons belts on, and Cavallon hesitated, wondering if he should even bother taking his own. They had a two-titan escort, after all. Then his weapons belt appeared in front of him, clutched in Emery's grip her brows raised expectantly. He took it from her with a thankful grin and secured it around his waist. She drew her shoulders up. I wish you the best of luck, Mr. Mercer, she said pristinely in a spot-on impression of Mesa. Actually, it's Lord Mercer. She dropped the accent. Shut up. Technically, your royal highness, but I won't make you. You're an idiot. He shrugged. I don't make the rules. I feel like that's a good thing. Helmet's on, Rake announced. Emery lifted Cavallon's helmet and dropped it onto his head unceremoniously. Thank you, squire. She crossed her arms and made a dramatic show of rolling her eyes. Cavallon locked his helmet to his suit, then took on the onslaught of information shown in the hood. His vitals sat on the left side, with the already yellow heart rate meter slowly picking up speed. Emery gave him a sidelong glance, then her disgruntled look faded away. Her jaw skimmed back and forth as she rolled her gum around for a few silent seconds. Bring me back a souvenir? Not sure it's the type of locale to have a gift shop, but I'll do my best. Or just don't die. That'd be fine, too. Cavallon corked an eyebrow. Emery cared if he died? Not that he thought she wanted him dead, but the sentiment still surprised him though she'd probably lost people she cared about aboard the Argus. She might not be keen on watching more friends die, even if they were new ones. Copy, boss, he said with his best reassuring smile. No dying. Emery grinned, then turned and disappeared into the cockpit behind Jackin. Rake's voice crackled through the comms in his suit. Everyone ready? Ready, Griffith said. Mesa inclined her head. Yes, Exubiter. Good, sir, Cavallon said. Depressurizing, 
Rake tapped the control screen and Cavallon's eardrums pulsed as the hatch cycled. Yet his feet didn't lift off the floor, which meant the structure provided some kind of artificial gravity. In his HUD, a green notification read, Exterior oxygen levels stable. Rake opened the hatch, and a flimsy ladder unfolded to the ground. Griffith climbed down first, then Mesa shuffled forward and followed, tucking the pyramid under one arm. Cavallon's mouth went dry, palms slicking with sweat, either from fear or excitement or some of both. He took a few long, deliberate breaths to try and stay calm, then looked at Rake. She tilted her head, sliding her fingers across her suit's nexus. The comms clicked, and his display indicated she'd switched to a private line. You okay? She asked. He lowered his voice. I mean, if Jack wants to go instead, I need Jack in here figuring out how the hell we're going to undock, she said evenly. Cavallon nodded fervently. Right, I know. I need you with us. Her earnest eyes met his. The yellow heart rate meter in his HUD slowed, then fell to green. Yeah, I'm with you. She thunked her gloved hand against the side of his helmet. You want to go first? He nodded, steeled his resolve, then rung by rung descended the swaying ladder. He hopped off the end where Griffith stood waiting, arms out as if ready to catch him. A few meters away, Mesa stared down the platform toward the spherical bronze structure at the end of the narrow path. Cavallon stepped out from under the SGL and for whatever reason decided to look up. He instantly regretted it. The immense curved ceiling stretched out dozens of kilometers above, sending a wave of vertigo through him. He quickly diverted his gaze down, but found much the same thing, only in a direction in which he could fall. He leveled out his chin, focusing on the simple bronze door at the end of the long platform. He should really just keep his eyes straight ahead for the remainder of his life. No good ever came from looking up or down. Along with a clunk of boots, Rake appeared beside him. A click sounded in his helmet, and the readout indicated that Rake switched back to universal comms. Atmo reads safe, Rake said. But let's keep helmets on just in case. Copy, Griffith said. You guys ready? She slid past Cavallon, then Mesa, and started down the platform toward the bronze sphere. Mesa fell in directly behind her. Cavallon startled as Griffith gave him a rough pat on the back. Everything okay, Doc? Yes. Cavallon grimaced as his voice broke. One syllable. He had to croak out one convincing enough word, and he couldn't even manage that. One foot in front of the other, Griffith prompted, tone patient. Right. Cavallon willed his feet forward, focusing on the back of Mesa's head to discourage his wandering gaze. They finally arrived at the end of the walkway where the platform fanned out wider as it melded seamlessly into the side of the bronze sphere. I don't see any access panels. Rake walked to the door and ran her hands over the edges of the doorframe. Mesa cleared her throat. Might I suggest? She held up the polished gold pyramid. Rake swept her hand forward in invitation. Mesa took a few careful steps toward the door. Rake and Griffith drew their pistols. Just as it had aboard the SGL, the pyramid began to glow. The door split down the middle, and the bronze panel slid silently into the walls on either side. 
They all stood frozen for a few seconds, staring into the darkness beyond the door. One by one, a series of recessed vertical wall trenches lit, illuminating a square, open chamber, slightly larger than the SGL's common room. The walls gleamed, the same soft gold as the Atlas Pyramid. Terminals sat recessed into the wall on both sides. The left looked like a standard computer display, but the right appeared to be some kind of apparatus with a strange half-cylindrical slot set into the face of the glass screen. A floor-to-ceiling, four-meter-wide piece of dark glass dominated the far wall. Cavallon couldn't tell if it was a view screen or a window. Rake's voice crackled over the comms. I'm on point. Copy, Griffith replied. She crossed the threshold and Griffith hovered off her shoulder. Together they swept the room quickly and efficiently while Mesa and Cavallon waited outside the door. Clear. Rake lowered her aim but kept her weapon in hand. Cavallon crossed through the doorway and Mesa followed with the atlas. The door slid shut behind them. Sealed inside, a thick weight of silence overcame Cavallon. Hard-angled trenches of golden metal formed the walls, while a single panel of dark, ribbed aerosteel comprised the floor, yet both dampened sounds like thick carpet. Mesa headed for the terminal on the left, but the large glass panel straight ahead grabbed Cavallon's attention. As he moved closer, it became clear that it was, in fact, a window into another area. However, the extremely thick glass heavily distorted the view. There were no lights on the other side, but from what little spilled in, he could make out an open circular chamber, ten meters in diameter. Strips of coiled copper rounded up the arcing walls in unbroken rings, set between dozens of rows of reflective panels. Rake appeared in his periphery. What is it? He shook his head. I don't know. Rake. Griffith stood in front of the wall to the left of the wide window. There's a door. Rake crossed back to Mesa, who busily swept through menus on the terminal. She passed the pyramid off to Rake without so much as a glance. Griffith raised his gun and shifted to the side. With her pistol in one hand and the pyramid gripped in the other, Rake cautiously approached the door. It slid open and she set the pyramid down near the threshold before moving inside with Griffith shortly behind. Cavallon took a few cautious steps forward and peered in. The doorway led to an arched corridor made of the same smooth matte gold, curving around the outside of the empty circular chamber. Griffith and Rake disappeared down the corridor while Cavallon hovered in the doorway and waited. Clear, Griffith said a few moments later. Cav? Rake said. Coming. He found them halfway down at what must have been the point opposite the window. The inside wall held a three-meter-wide control panel. A handful of old-school, non-holographic terminal screens, all without power, mixed with a variety of panels containing levers, switches, buttons, and gauges of all kinds. What do you think? Rake asked. Kevalon shook his head, not a damn label in sight, even with Viator symbols. I'm not sure. Kevalon? Mesa crackled through his comms. Rake waved him off and he headed back out into the main room. Mesa still stood at the terminal and he joined her, looking down at the flat, non-holographic display. 
She'd brought up an overhead schematic of what looked to be the chamber beyond the window. This technology is odd, she said, and old. How old? I do not know. It is not the kind of design I would expect to see from Viators, ancient or otherwise. Does this look like anything to you? His eyes flashed over the diagram, but he couldn't make sense of most of it. Though to his surprise, he recognized a few of the Viator symbols from what he'd learned looking at the Atlas menus. Offline, flashed in the upper corner, and symbols he'd surmised from the bomb schematics to mean fuel were listed below a flashing red heading, among a few others he couldn't interpret. Beside it, a bold green symbol acted as a heading for another list full of symbols he didn't recognize. He pointed to the first line below the green heading. What's this mean? Mesa tilted her head. The third symbol means aid system, as in a support system. The first two, cryonic. Griffith's low voice rumbled. Cavalon turned to find the tall man standing over his shoulder. Then, stable. So, cryostatic. Cavalon looked back at the schematic, assigning that one to memory along with the few dozen others he now understood. Is this diverter? He pointed at one listed under the red heading. Mason nodded. Yes, very astute. Specifically, waste diversion, I believe, or byproduct. And this last one? Plasma. Mesa said, then tilted her head back and forth a few times. Plasma one. Meaning hydrogen plasma? Correct. Cavalon ran his eyes over the schematic again, trying to account for it as a whole. Fuel injection, cryostatic and waste diversion systems, plasma, hydrogen, rings of coiled metal. This overhead only seems to include the chamber, he said. Is there a separate one for that corridor around it? Mesa swept back through the menus and opened another file. That's it, he said, and Mesa stepped aside. Cavalon hunched over the screen, staring down at it as his mind raced. He pointed to another series of symbols. What's this? It is an alloy, niobium, and tin? Titanium, Mesa corrected. He shook his head. It's not a bomb, he mumbled. What? Open the atlas, he instructed to no one in particular. Rake pushed off the doorway of the curved corridor and placed the pyramid on the floor in the center of the room. Mason knelt beside it and swept the medallion across the peak. The menus sprang to life. Cavallon stepped through the screens, then found the stack of yellow schematics and opened them. He surveyed the information again, crossing back over to look at the terminal a few times to compare. This is not a bomb, he said finally. It's a reaction like a hydrogen bomb, but not. It's for this. For what? Rake asked. This? Cavallon pointed to the dark glass window. It's a generator. Mesa's skeptical look was apparent even through her visor. So this is simply a fusion reactor? Yes, but no. Well, which is it, Doc? Griffith said. Sorry. Cavallon took a breath, willing his jumbled mind to calm down and organize the information in a way he could relate to the others, or at least a Mesa. Not a normal fusion reactor. I mean, it's just a big empty sphere. 
It isn't even toroidal, and I don't see any systems for plasma injection. Then how does it function? Mesa asked. It uses this. He led Mesa back to the terminal, pointing to the circular corridor schematics. This is not just a containment chamber. Well, it is. It's dual purpose. And its additional purpose? I think it's a grav generator. These coil windings? They're niobium titanium. A component of superconducting magnets. Right, Cavallon said. If it works the way I think it does, it'd be incredibly powerful. I'm surprised this thing doesn't suck the whole complex into it when it's on. Counteracting it must be part of the shell's design. What precisely is it you believe this gravity generator does? Mesa asked. I think instead of plasma and an electrical charge and maintaining a magnetic field and all that crap, it just takes a shit ton of hydrogen and forces it to collapse, then sits back and lets nature do its thing. Mesa scoffed. Cavallon, you are describing how a star is made. I know. It requires prodigious amounts of mass collapsing for millions of years for a star to be born. I know. Even if it were possible, she continued, it could not be contained inside a structure. The heat and radiation generated would be astounding. He nodded. I know, but I swear that's what's going on here. Rake cleared her throat. Okay, regardless of how, what about why? What's all this power for? The beacon, right? Griffith put in. Is this how we fix it? Power it back up? I guess, but... Cavallon began, then let out a scoff. It's kind of overkill just to collect and send out some data. Data across light years, Rake pointed out. True, but still, this thing could power a friggin' solar system. Mace, what's this? Griffith pointed to a series of symbols in the highest right corner of the atlas's display, resting even above his eye level. Kevlon realized then that even though Rake had updated Griffith on what the atlas was, he had yet to see it in person. Having him take a look probably would have been a good idea, considering he was at least as schooled as Rake in the Viator language. I can read most of this, Griffith continued, but I don't recognize this word. Mesa took a step closer, craning her neck to look up. Griffith palmed the screen and pulled it down to her height. She tilted her head as she stared at it. The structure of this software looks a lot like what they would use for industrial planning, Griffith continued. I think this is part of the project name. Delacia Carthen. Mesa's voice withered away as concern creased her brow. She shook her head. I did not notice that before. It is the Viator word for, well, we call it quintessence. And what's that? Rake asked. Dark energy, Cavallon answered. Mason nodded. It is one of the fundamental forces, such as gravity or electromagnetism. Rake exchanged a look with Griffith, and though it was difficult to tell through their visors, Cavallon was pretty sure they had no idea what that meant. It's like repulsive gravity. Cavallon offered. Sorta. Where gravity pulls things together, dark energy pushes them apart. Quintessence is a form of that. Kinda an old school term, actually. He trailed off as he looked to Mesa for help, but she faced away, staring back at the bronze door that led out to the platform. 
repulsive gravity, she mumbled. What's up, Mesa? Rake asked. Mesa still didn't turn to face them and continued to speak low as if conversing with herself. What if it is the opposite? Uh, Cavallon looked to Rake and Griffith, though they appeared just as lost as he was. What if it's the opposite of what? This gravity generator you theorize, Mesis said, as if she hadn't heard him at all. Which houses the containment chamber for the power source. What if that existed on a large scale? What if the outside hull, she pointed to the exit door, was the same thing? You think this whole station is a gravity generator? He asked. Well, no. I mean, yes. That is what I thought. However, now I think the opposite. Cavallon gaped at her, though he knew she couldn't fully appreciate his incredulity through his visor. She'd concocted and supported a whole hypothesis, then discredited it and moved on to another, all in the same amount of time it had taken him to figure out how to explain dark energy to Rake and Griffith. The opposite, but on a grand scale. Mesa continued, her tone filling out, sounding more confident than it had since they'd decelerated from warp. And there are many of them, correct? All along the divide? If these beacons are not, in fact, beacons. Kevlon tried to focus, tried to process her words, at least well enough to ask an informed question, but he could find nothing to grab onto. Rake beat him to the punch, letting out a disbelieving scoff. You think these stations are pulling in the divide? That they weaponized the edge of the universe? Well, clearly not, because it is off, Mesa replied frankly and the divide is still collapsing. Wait, back up, Cavallon said. What are we talking about here? Mesa drew up her posture and gave a curt nod. I do not believe that this station is a gravity generator, but instead a dark energy generator. Cavallon shook his head. He'd studied gravity generators in their many forms in great detail, but he'd never heard of anything that could create the opposing force. Is that a thing? he asked, trying for a level tone, but it still carried with it a strong vein of skepticism. In the original Viator War, Mesa began, Viator forces utilized a form of planetary defense involving the subtle manipulation of dark energy. They called them Carthen Shields. I've heard of those, Griffith said, exchanging a knowing look with Rake, who nodded in recognition as well. It seemed Cavallon was the one in the dark on this one. They called them AGPs, anti-grav pulse stations, Griffith continued. But we never encountered one in the resurgence war that I know of. Mason nodded. It is very complex technology, on par with the Apollo gates. We do not understand it at all. Anti-grav meaning dark energy? Cavallon asked. Correct. A misnomer, absolutely. Mesa said curtly, though she immediately traded in her disdain at whoever had coined the term, reverting to her cautious yet excited state. It would either collect or manifest dark energy. We have never been certain which, then insert it elsewhere. In the case of the planetary defense system, it would infuse the force into the upper atmosphere and create a buffer of sorts around the planet. Focused, directional versions also existed, they had made attempts at weaponizing it, though I am not aware of any success in that regard. 
Cavallon rubbed the back of his neck through his suit. What kind of buffer? It'd keep enemy vessels at bay for longer, Rake answered. It basically expanded the amount of empty space between the device and incoming ships. It couldn't produce enough to stop them entirely, but it would slow their trajectory. Huh, Cavallon said. It had started to click, slowly. So it actually bloated space, in a sense? Made it take longer to get somewhere? Correct, Mesa said. Though as I said on a very small scale, a ship caught in it might have taken 10 or 15 minutes longer to breach the exosphere of a planet. How? He began, but his voice faded away. He didn't know where to start with the list of questions this concept generated. Mesa shook her head. We are not sure how it functioned, and it was not utilized often, only when extreme measures were called for, a last-ditch effort, as they say. Why? Cavallon asked. It took an enormous amount of energy to power, Mesa said. So it was difficult to utilize at outposts or on planets where they did not already have a strong foothold. Also, the repercussions often outweighed the little leeway it would grant them, it interfered with ship systems, scanners, communications. Personnel reported strange accounts, both planet-side and in the area of effect. Strange accounts, Rake asked. Like what? Physical pressure on one's internal organs, as if being compacted or pulled apart. A myriad of psychological effects, such as feelings of complacency or unrest. Dreams that occurred out of time. Difficulty hearing. Wait, Rake said. Dreams out of time? Mesa nodded. As in dreams of the future or past, visions some called them, some even claimed to have seen them when awake. A silence fell over them as they stared at Mesa, and Cavallon's heart thudded loud in his ears. Mesa seemed unaware of the bomb she'd just dropped. Well, aware, but not nearly as shocked by the implication as she should have been. She'd likely already come to that conclusion, processed it, and filed her reaction away as a useless emotion. It makes sense, Mesa said, tone light. Correct? They stared silently back at her, and Cavallon's mind reeled. She'd skipped over large swaths in the path of logic that had led her there, but to Cavallon's intense displeasure, he'd started to understand. Rake managed to speak first. Mesa, you think this structure is that same technology? A dark energy generator? Mesa's eyes lit up. Yes, you do understand. She smiled and nodded. But on a far grander scale, clearly it would take a great deal more power to create the amount of dark energy needed to overcome the gravitational imbalance of the universe. Griffith let out a sharp scoff. Okay, what the fuck are we talking about here? Rake stared down at the floor for a beat before looking back up. Can you walk us through this a little more, Mace? Of course. Let me start at the beginning. Mesa cleared her throat and laid her hands together. After its creation, the universe expanded. This was due to an abundance of dark energy. It pushed the confines of space outward at an ever-accelerating rate. However, after a time, many billions of years the amount of dark energy present began to underperform the gravity created by the mass of the universe. The expansion slowed and eventually ceased. 
Now the theory had been that it would eventually begin to collapse, but it never did. It held still, achieving a balance, a stasis. But what if that was not a natural equilibrium? In the midst of the resulting long, heavy silence, Kevalon found himself nodding. He finally fully understood it, and he didn't like it one bit. Without us, you will perish. It took Kevalon a moment to register that Rake had spoken, under her breath, barely audible. Rake, Griffith said, tone heavy. I think Mesa's right. Rake intoned, her expression flat, gaze distant. Uh, back up. What did you say? Kavalon looked between the two titans. Griffith stared at Rake, who stared at the floor. That's what they told you, right? Griffith asked. The breeder? Rake nodded. Kavalon's mind reeled. He was way out of the loop on this one, but too shocked to form a proper response. A breeder spoke to you, Mesa asked, tone inquisitive. You think they knew? Griffith said, about these stations? Then we killed them all off. Rake gave a rueful shake of her head. And now the stations are falling apart. Except we didn't kill them, Griffith said. Not all of them. Cavalon gaped. Wait, we didn't? Rake leveled a flat look at him. You saw the Viator on the video yourself. Right, but you said... Kevalon let out a short sigh. He had no idea what they were talking about, but he knew it didn't matter. The gist was, there were viators left, and one had said some shit to Rake, and that somehow translated into her believing this ludicrous hypothesis of Mesa's. But the trouble was, Kevalon found himself believing it too. As much as he wanted to find a way to refute her, it actually made a lot of sense. The science was unsettlingly solid. Why gravity got so dense and strange at the divide. Why comms and other systems started to break down, even when millions of kilometers away. And the time ripples. If these stations had sat around for thousands of years pumping out tremendous amounts of dark energy, it would wreak havoc on the natural order of things. That, however, didn't even skim the surface of the implications this hypothesis presented. If these stations had been active since the universe stopped expanding, that would put viators in this part of the universe well before they arrived at mankind's doorstep in the core. Mesa, I get where you're coming from, Cavalon said. I really do. But come on, the implication of that? Correct, Mesa said, her voice steady as ever. The implication being that the viators stopped the collapse of the universe by building these stations. Griffith let out a heavy breath. But then what? Cavalon said. They just battened up this side of it and left it at that? What about the rest of the entire edge? They can't possibly have traveled the entire universe. No, Mesa said. Only the perimeter. Cavalon scoffed. Right, but still. Think about what we do know, Mesa prompted. They traveled the divide for millennia before they found mankind. They may have come from the other side of the universe. There could be trillions upon trillions of viators still alive wherever they came from. The viators we know could be a small sampling, sent for the express purpose of building these stations in this sector of the universe. Cavalon shook his head. 
I thought they traveled here on the divide. They can't have it if they built it. Mesa shrugged. That was the assumption. But we had no outposts anywhere near the divide at that point. We have no direct accounts of their origin. So what? Griffith said. They've finished building the stations and decided to stick around a while and pillage mankind? Right, Cavallon agreed. I mean, even once they were losing, they never tried to leave or get reinforcements. Maybe they couldn't go home, Rakes said, tone heavy. Mesa's face suddenly went blank, and she stared up and off into the distance. Cavallon cleared his throat. Mesa. Her consciousness seemed to snap back to her in an instant, and her eyes refocused onto him. There is an ancient Viator phrase, she began. Part of a series of verses, not from two centuries ago, but their history. Very old, some of the earliest chronicles we have from them. It does not translate well, but part of it essentially says, the shunned will build the edge. It has long been interpreted to imply the expectation of inclusion. As you know, viators did not segregate within their species. Rake hung her head. You think it's literal? Maybe, Mesa said. There is more to the saying than that, but I have not committed it to memory. It was actually the basis for the sentinel nursery rhyme. You know the one? Sentinel, sentinel, at the black? Yeah, we know the one, Rake grumbled. Fuck, Mesa. Indeed. Mesa agreed with a curt nod. Griffith leaned against the wall. So you think ancient, far, far away viators sent their shunned troops to stop the collapse, and they had to circle the universe to create all these stations? Mesa inclined her head. That is my hypothesis, yes. All right. Rake drew in a long breath. Reconstructing Viator history right now is way off point. Griffith nodded his agreement. So the data beacons we see here. He moved away from the wall to point to the crisp white holographic map. They are actually all dark energy generators? If my hypothesis is correct, yes, Mesa said. It is likely that the Alpha stations began to break down, but the redundant Beta stations, being inactive, have failed to pick up the load. It is possible their power sources failed, as it appears this one has. And with no, or, she eyed Rake and Griffith warily, with so few viators remaining, they were not able to maintain the generators properly. So... That's what the one in the message meant by restart the station, Cavallon asked, turning to look at Rake. And why there are so many chemicals and strange supplies aboard the dredger ship? They were recruited to restart the reactors and fix the stations? Right, Rake said dryly. And we killed them. Cavallon sighed. That was great, just fucking perfect. Rake, Jackin's voice came over the comms. Go for Rake. We figured it out. Had to delve into the secondary control permissions. Simple little data lock. Old school stuff. We're good to head out whenever you're done. Great, Jack. Thanks. We'll be in... We figured it out, Jackin said again. Had to delve into the... Jack? What? Secondary control. Oh, fuck. Jackin crackled away. Rake put her hands on her hips and looked straight down at her boots. Jack... A few moments later, he came back on. Yeah, boss. So, 
Little bit of a time ripple thing going on in here. Emery! He cut away again, then came back a few seconds later. Okay, I got them split up. Take your time, boss. Hey, what did I just say? She started, was all the comms caught of Emery's high-pitched voice in the background before cutting away. Rake let out a long sigh. Shit. Cavallon swept his gaze from Rake to Griffith, then to Mesa, but no one seemed sure what to say. Rake finally spoke up, turning to Cavallon. There's nothing we can do right now, correct? There's no restarting this generator without the supplies from the synthesis? I doubt it, unless there's a large amount of hydrogen just lying around somewhere. Okay, Rake said. Then we head back to Karin. We'll come up with a plan after that. Chapter 35 Adequin tasked Mesa and Cavallon with updating Jackin and Emery, then sat next to Griffith on the circular bench for the short trip back to Karingate. They quietly discussed their discovery, but Adequin couldn't find a way to focus her full mental efforts on it. It was ridiculous and unbelievable and daunting. But Griffith was dying, and somehow that overshadowed even this. He still claimed he felt fine, tired but fine. She could hardly believe he had so little time left, but she trusted Cavallon's diagnosis, which somehow wasn't difficult. He had no reason to lie, and he clearly understood what was going on. She didn't like it, but she believed it. And it was killing her. When they decelerated from warp and cruised up to the gate, they hadn't even docked before Adequin's nexus lit up. EX? Puck's voice crackled in, thin and staticky. You guys reading us yet? Go for Rake. We, uh, just got a mayday from the Typhos. What? She barked. The Typhos, the next closest sentinel ship and the next in danger of being wiped out by the Divide. I lost the connection, Puck said, but I recorded it. I'll be right there, Adequin said. She waited for the gravity to flip, then headed straight up the ladder and out the hatch. Griffith and the others followed close behind. In the control room, Warner and Puck stood at the terminal next to the one that still held an open comm link to Poingate. Puck glanced over as she approached. Find anything useful? You could say that, she sighed. What's going on with the typhus? Puck brought up a recording on the terminal and pressed play. The brassy audio came with a great deal of crackling, cursing, and a few back and forth grumbles. Puck gave her a nervous grin, then fast forwarded and pressed play again. Puck's voice played first. Typhus, this is Karin, we read you. Oh, fucking finally. The gruff voice on the other end crackled through. Karin, this is Optio Becker, SCS Typhus. We mayday. Optio, Puck said. There were a few seconds of hissing static. Hear us. Yes, hearing you again, sir. We need to abandon ship immediately. Send vessels. Sir, be advised we cannot relay to you. Both Zealous Gate and Karin have been turned off and abandoned. Karin's been abandoned too? Yes, sir. 
then who the fuck are you? Where, uh, where what remains of the crew of the Argus, sir? The same thing happened to us. We retreated to here. We, the man's voice cut away, and Adequin grimaced as a loud squeal rang out, drowning the rest of his sentence in static. Divide is contracting toward us. It is, sir. Fuck. Do you have any warp cores? Void, no. You need to get as many of your people as you can aboard your away vessels and start flying inward. Away vessels? We have a thousand fucking people. We could only fit maybe 30. Puck stayed silent for a few long seconds. Then his voice came back low and apologetic. You'll just have to do the best you can, sir. Fly straight inward. Try to make it here or zealous gate. How can we? Another peal of static overtook the recording, and Puck slid his finger across the screen to close the playback menu. That's when we lost them, he said quietly. Adequin rubbed the back of her neck. Puck looked down, and she gripped his shoulder. You did good, Circuiter. It'd take us weeks to warp to them, and by that time the divide would be so far in we'd all be done for. It's all you could do. He let out a soft sigh, then gave a furtive glance at Griffith and Jackin, standing behind her, speaking quietly. Sir, Puck said, can I talk with you in private for a moment? She nodded, and he followed as she crossed to an empty corner of the room. What is it? Puck lowered his voice. I didn't want to announce it in front of everyone because I wasn't sure what you'd want to do. But I dug deep into the code, and I found a restart failsafe. It's what's been keeping us from getting the gate turned back on. Her heart skipped a beat. You can turn it on? He nodded. Rake, Jackin called suddenly. She looked back over to find Jackin hovered over the main terminal. It's Lujan. Adequin's breath stalled in her throat, and she hesitated only a second before jogging across the room and sliding into the seat. It had taken fucking long enough. He'd probably been sunning himself on some outer core tropical beach. But she was relieved. If anyone could do something to help them, it was Lujan. She let out a heavy breath, then pressed the link. Go for Rake. Prius statute Rake. Lujan's gravelly voice rang through, thin, tinny, and distant. Sorry, sir, Adequin began. Protocol calls for Delta clearance or higher when reporting matters relating to SC security. I wasn't sure what this would be classified as. It's fine, Exubiter. What's this all about? Adequin hesitated. She'd run this conversation through her mind dozens of times, but now she had no idea where to start. She cleared her throat and pressed the link. Might as well hit him with it up front. Sir, the divide is collapsing and moving inward at an increasing rate. What? He said, incredulous. Who gave you that report? No report, sir. I saw it with my own eyes. You're still out there? Yes, sir. And the Argus... She cleared her throat. It's gone, sir. Where are you? Karin Gate, which has been abandoned. Sir, have we withdrawn from the divide? Lujan hesitated. That happened weeks ago. 
Adequin clenched her teeth. She already knew it was true. All the signs pointed to it. It was another thing to hear it confirmed. She took a steadying breath. Why weren't we informed? His tone grew disconcerted. I don't know, Rake. And the Apollo Gates, too? That Oculus at Poin claimed Eris and Zealous have been decommissioned as well. Why? What's going on? I wish I had answers for you, I really do. But none of this is my jurisdiction. Have the other Sentinels been informed? We just heard from the Typhus, they didn't know either. Shit, Rake. Lujin clicked off for a few long seconds, then came back on. Something's not right. Get car and operational and come back here directly to me. We'll sort this mess out on this end. Wait, sir, she said quickly. We found something out here. Viator technology. We might be able to use it to stop the collapse, but we need soldiers, resources, backup. That's not your responsibility, Exubiter. You and your crew need to return to Legion HQ. But sir, there are dozens of other Sentinel ships still stranded. Thousands of soldiers. They'll need arcs, and that could take weeks. The crew of the Typhus has hours. If a rescue's not already incoming, we might be the only ones left that can help. I... I'll look into it. I'll try to get a hold of Praetor Tyne. Confirm ships have been sent. Adequin let off the link and sat back, digging her fingers into her scalp. Jacken scoffed. Like hell they're sending anyone. She nodded slowly. He was right, like hell they were. Whispers rose up behind her, but her addled mind ignored them. This was what she'd wanted, what she'd been waiting for, a definitive course of action, an order. But she'd barely been able to save 20 of her own soldiers, and there were over a thousand people on the typhus. Rake, you still there? Lujan asked. Sir, I... She swallowed a lump in her throat and leaned forward. Sir, I have to go. What? Rake, wait, what's going on? Is your gate operational? It will be shortly, sir. So you're returning to the core? No, sir. Lujan didn't speak for a long time. Then his weary voice crackled back on. Exubiter. The majority of my crew will be coming through on a drudger vessel. Call sign. Jackin swept open a file on his nexus and held it out in front of her. VCF-840115. Fine, if you're going to make me, Lujan growled. Exubiter, I order you to return to the core. I can't, sir. Rake? His serious tone carried a heavy warning that instantly made her second guess herself. She swallowed and steeled her nerves. I have to fix it, sir, or at least stop it from getting worse. There's protocol for this kind of thing. For the universe collapsing, sir, I'm not sure there is. You have to trust me on this. We'll send assistance. That'll take too long. We can't keep waiting for the Legion. He stayed silent for a few tense seconds. Do not do this to me again, Adequin, he breathed, his tone furtive. I don't know if I can protect you this time. 
Adequin disconnected the call. She sat in silence and stared at the dead link. Rick. Jackin's voice broke through, low and full of worry. What are you doing? She stood and turned around. Jackin, Griffith, Mesa, Cavallon, Emery, Warner, and Puck all stood eyeing her in various degrees of shock and discomfort. Rake, Jackin said again. She shook her head. We can't just go back to the core. But it'll stop, right? The divide. Once it settles between the alpha stations that are still working, it's just squaring off, sort of. It won't just keep collapsing and wipe out everything. If those stations don't fail as well, Adequin said. Even if they do stay on, it would still take out every sentinel ship between the two. And what if it starts wiping out Apollo gates? Then any sentinels that manage to flee the divide will be stranded out here with no way home. She's right. Griffith said. If the gates at the Divide are taken out, it's over. It'd take a lifetime or longer to warp to the next closest gates. Adequin nodded. We have to get that beacon restarted. Stop the collapse. Sorry, Puck said suddenly, hovering behind Mesa and Cavallon, eyes wide in disbelief. What does that mean exactly? Stop the collapse. Thankfully, Mesa turned to him and made brief work of it. The data beacons are not data beacons, but dark energy generators. Their cessation seems to be the cause of the divide's collapse. Puck gaped at her, mouth open. Warner ran a hand down his face. Adequin looked to Cavallon. So we have to restart the power source, correct? Right, Cavallon said, face fixed in shock. By that, I mean you have to restart the power source. He didn't move. I know. Which is what? Puck asked warily. A star, apparently, Griffith said. A contained fusion reaction, Cavallon clarified, scratching his stubble with both hands. It's not really a star, just sort of. So you're saying we have to restart a star? Puck asked. Well, no, Mesa corrected pleasantly. We have to make a star, or primarily Cavallon does. Cavallon pinched the bridge of his nose. I think I get the theory behind it, guys, but... Adequin took a step toward him, lowering her voice. That's all any of this has been, she said, trying to sound encouraging. Just putting theory into practice. You've built hydrogen bombs. It's similar, right? Jackin's eyes went wide in alarm. I'm sorry, what? Bombs? Puck croaked. Really? Mesa's large eyes narrowed. Cavallon shook his head. Similar, maybe. But I mean, you're asking me to jury-rig a star. Inside of something else, with ancient alien technology, I can't even begin to understand. Adequin nodded. Yeah, I am. He stared back at her, unmoving. Can you do it? She asked. He let out an extremely long breath that went from his nose to his throat in a crackling grumble. Yeah, 
I think I can. She shook her head. It wasn't good enough. To risk their lives at a chance to stop this, she needed him to be sure. I can't accept that. Can you do it or not? Cavallon's resigned stare flickered into worry. Then his features flattened out, eyes narrowing. Yes, I can do it. Adequin swept her look to Mesa. Mesa, I would like you to be there to help, but I only want you to go if you feel com- Exuber, please, Mesa scoffed. I will be going. Jack, come on, boss. Adequin sighed, knowing the futility of trying to talk him out of it. She looked at Griffith next, and her heart sank. Griff, I think you should stick with the crew. They could use your guidance, and a couple relays inward, you might be able to find a doctor. He rolled his eyes and crossed his arms. Adequin swallowed the lump in her throat. Arguing with him would be beyond pointless. Of course he'd be coming. He literally had nothing left to lose. Hours of life left. Fine, she said, voice weak. She cleared her throat, then turned to Emery and Warner. Sir, Emery said, back straight. I'm there if you need me, sir. Warner nodded. Me too, EX. Thank you both for all you've done, Adequin said. But I need you to help out with things here. Report directly to Circuit or Eura. Yes, sir, Emery said. Warner saluted, fist to chest. Yes, sir. And me, sir? Puck asked. You need to get the gate turned on, then help Yura get everyone aboard the synthesis and ready to go through the second we're back. Exubiter, Mesa began, then gave a hesitant glance at Puck. His expertise may be useful. We do not know what kind of issues we may encounter with the generator's mainframe. Adequin wrung her hands. She didn't want to risk anyone else, but Mesa was right. If they ran into issues with the computers, Puck would be their best shot. She locked eyes with him. Puck, you up for it? Yes, sir. His back straightened. Of course, sir. You understand the risks? As in suicide mission? She swallowed back the bile. Yeah. Sounds great, he said pleasantly. He glanced at Mesa, and his tone fell serious. I mean, yes, sir. Understood, sir. Okay, then you're with us, Adequin agreed. But get the gate back on first and make sure Yura or someone else feels comfortable piloting the synthesis. He saluted. Yes, sir. Jack? Boss? Take Cavallon and Mesa and however many others you need to unload the supplies off the synthesis and onto the SGL. You got it, Jackin said. Why not just take the synthesis ourselves? Griffith asked. It's already loaded up with everything we need. Adequin shook her head. We can't. We need to leave them a vessel that's safe to take through the gate. In case we... She swallowed. In case we don't make it back in time. Griffith's brow furrowed, and he gave her a short nod. Jackin patted him on the back, then gripped Cavallon's shoulder and led him out of the control room. Mesa, Puck, Emery, and Warner followed. Griffith waited for the others to disappear around the corner, then turned to face her.
I'm proud of you, Quinn. Why? You all but told Lujan to go fuck himself. She let out a pained laugh. Yeah, I'm really screwed this time. Nah, more care, he said, warm eyes glistening. You're better than ever. She pushed up on her toes and kissed him. Griffith winced, cradling his ribcage with one arm. Void, she said, I'm sorry. You need more apexidone? No, I'll be fine. You know there's such a thing as being too apologetic, especially when it's for things that aren't your fault. I mean, your whole situation is objectively my fault, she said. I asked you to captain the Tempest to begin with, and I insisted you go on one last trip, not to mention you're stationed out here to start with because of what I did. What are you talking about? He asked, seeming honestly confused. You were sent to the Divide because of what I did. He shook his head. No, I wasn't. I asked to be stationed here. She stared, unblinking. You asked? Of course. Her chest warmed, but with it came a tinge of anger. All she could manage in response was a feeble, why would you do that? Because I didn't want to be a hundred million light years away from you. But you're here now, like this, she said, her voice fervent. You could be safe at some boring post in the core. He quirked an eyebrow. You think I'd be happy at some boring post in the core? Well, no, she muttered. But here? Why? Because I love you, Quinn. She stared at him, unblinking, completely unsure of what to say. She'd known it for so long, voicing it almost seemed superfluous. Yet something about actually hearing the words come out of his mouth consoled her. Validated something she'd hid, even from herself, for so long. Griffith loved her. She wound her fingers into his, his skin warm, almost hot. I love you, she said. He leaned in, lips locking onto hers. He pulled her closer as the kiss deepened. He let out a wistful sigh. I should probably help load the SGL, he said quietly, taking a step back. She scowled. You're hurt, you should let the others take care of it. He flashed a grin and ignored her as he started for the door. Cause, you know, the strength of ten men, and that's without imprints. She rolled her eyes as he disappeared around the corner. His playful smile warmed her heart, but too quickly the feeling grew tainted. She was well aware of his impending fate, and that she could do nothing to stop it. She took a breath, stealing her resolve and deciding to focus on what she still had a chance to stop, the divide. She started down the hall toward their makeshift base camp, wanting to confirm they had every warp core they'd collected aboard the SGL, just in case. She stopped partway to wait as a line of soldiers passed toward the airlock, on their way to help transfer supplies. A flicker of recognition had her sticking her arm out to bar the last one from continuing on. 
Seconds later, they were alone in the narrow hallway. Snyder, she said. The man stared at her arm, watching warily as her imprints rearranged themselves. He stepped back and snapped to attention. Sir. She crossed her arms. Got anything you want to say to me? No, sir. She stared back at him. His eyes flitted to the ground, but he remained impassive. He wouldn't say anything, she said, but I'm not blind. Sir? She gave a pointed look down at his hands. He rubbed his red, bruised knuckles, and his face flushed. Er, that's just- Rake, Jackin's voice called over her nexus. Adequin ground her teeth. As much as she wanted to put this guy's head through a wall, she was, in fact, trying to save the Sentinels, so murdering one felt like a step in the wrong direction. It wouldn't do much for morale to start executing people. She leaned in and lowered her voice. If you lay a hand on one of my soldiers ever again, I will personally end you. Snyder's face paled and he nodded quickly. Tell me you understand. I understand, he managed. Get the fuck out of my sight. He backed away, then scurried down the hall after the others. She opened the comm link on her nexus. Go for rake. Uh, meet me in the control room, Jackin said. Copy. Adequin headed back to the control room, and a few seconds later, Jackin appeared. He pushed a stiff hand through his hair. I saw a ripple. Her eyebrows shot up. Just now? Yeah. How can it be that far in already? I don't, he said distantly, then sat at the terminal. She sat next to him as he slid through menus. Finally, he grumbled, shit. What? Gate sensors are picking up a gravitational pull like what we were getting on the Argus. It's still far away, but it's starting. Already? She breathed. What does that mean for the beta beacon? I don't know. We're gonna be pressed for time for sure. We can check the atlas on the way, see if it looks like it's updating or not. But we should leave ASAP. They're unloading the supplies now, Jackin assured. Shouldn't be more than 15 minutes. Good. Jackin grimaced, rubbing his fingers gingerly over the healing burn marks that had cut a path through his beard. How's it feel? She asked. Better. Starting to itch is all. He scratched at the unmarred half of his beard. I should probably shave it, huh? She tilted her head. Nah, I kinda like the asymmetry. He quirked a brow. Makes you seem edgy. A grin twitched on his lips for a brief moment before being overtaken by a frown. Rake. Yeah, Jack. We haven't had a chance to talk about Bach. Her eyes fluttered down to the terminal screen. I know. Are you okay? As okay as I can be. I know you like to blame yourself for things. Just don't. It's not your fault. She continued to stare down at the terminal. I don't blame myself, she said. I blame the Legion. He grinned. About time you joined the party. She smiled back. 
I think my invite got lost in transit. Probably. You know how well comms work out here. She let out a heavy breath, then stood. Ready for this, Jack? He stood as well. Ready, boss. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can find The Last Watch and its sequel, The Exiled Fleet, wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thank you.